Sometimes in our lives, um, we neglect the things that are the most important. And we sometimes occupy ourselves with the other stuff that we're maybe we find easier, more comfortable, or sometimes what people call the tyranny of the urgent, whatever happens to be most the loudest voice calling out for you to be doing this, that's what you end up doing. But you sometimes neglect the things that are most important. And what's been on my heart this week, as we're taking just a, a little bit of a detour from our normal Sunday night series we're on with Evidence for the Bible, what's been on my heart has been worship, prayer, seeking the Lord, rejoicing in the Lord, um, and encouraging yourself in the Lord. This is, this is interesting because this is the thing that that Jesus said was most needful. He tells Mary, Mary, there's, well, not his mother, another one of the Marys, one of the other several Marys. <laughs> he tells her, You've, you know, you're, you're worried and troubled about many things, but one thing is needful. Or, or tell Martha, excuse me, and Mary has chosen that better thing. She's chosen that thing and he's not going to take it from her. That sometimes we're just busy, 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 and I know me, speaking of myself as well, I have things to do, tasks to perform. And then when I'm done with all my tasks, I just want to like relax or do my own thing. But sometimes we need to seek the Lord and we need to rejoice in the Lord and we need to devote some time and energy to just what to the world would seem like a waste of time. I'm just going to worship God. I'm just going to pray. I'm just going to seek God and I'm going to rejoice in him and encourage myself in the Lord. So let's look at Psalm chapter 33. We're going to read through Psalm 33 and discuss it and talk about it. And it's going to be our Bible study passage for tonight. So the book of Psalms, obviously written by David, at least a large uh, majority of the Psalms, and this one is no exception. Here's what he writes. He says, Rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous, for praise from the upright is beautiful. Praise from the upright is beautiful. So he tells us to rejoice in the Lord. This is a needful thing. This is something that you and me need to do. We definitely need to rejoice in the Lord. That word rejoice is interesting. It could be translated shout for joy or to emit a tremulous, stridulous sound. I'm glad they say rejoice. Or it would take much more explanation. But this is the idea of, of like a bursting forth. I'm rejoicing. I'm, I'm just exploding with what? With the Lord. In the Lord. I mean, God is wonderful. God is great. It's not just a platitude of life. It's, 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 a, it's a high point. It's a peak. God is wonderful. God is awesome. Personally, I think this is something we need. I think we need in our lives to have joy. I mean, what is life without joy? What is a joyless life really like? Like how, how much heavier are burdens when you don't have joy? How much harder are trials when you don't have joy? And how much more difficult are the difficult times of life when you don't have joy to help you out, to get you through? We, we need this. I need this. So we're not only to rejoice, though, we're to rejoice in the Lord. That's the manner of our rejoicing. As Christians, we're not to mindlessly, foolishly rejoice or paint, paint on happy faces and be happy plastic people, so to speak. But we're to actually genuinely rejoice in the Lord, not just in ourselves or our circumstances, but in the Lord. Now, in God, there is always a reason to rejoice. and There's always a cause for rejoicing. There's always a place where my heart and my mind can find an, an excuse for joy. Because I know the Lord. This is, this is 100% of the time true. When I don't un understand what's going on, and I don't know why it's happening, I always fall back on who. I don't know the what or the why or the how, I go to the who. 
and I go to God and I rejoice in the Lord. But this leads me to the question, how do I rejoice in the Lord? And I think this is where the rubber meets the road. Because what would you say to somebody if they asked you like, hey, I see you rejoicing in God. But I want that, but I have no idea how to do that. And then they think, I'm just not wired like you. Like what they tend to think is that this is a hardwired thing. Some people can rejoice in the Lord. Some people can't. I just don't have that hardwiring in my life. The answer is in this verse. And that's so often true in the scriptures where you, you, know, you get a question posed by a passage and then it's answered right there. So let's look at it again. Psalm 33, 1. Rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous, for praise from the upright is beautiful. There's a parallel here between rejoicing in God and praising or acting out worship. To praise means like to speak well of somebody, either about them or to them. That's praise. If I say, you know, Kirk, what a, what a lovely elbow you have. You know, I'm, this is a type of praise, you know. Now, to God, it, it comes, obviously, hopefully more, more profound than that. <laughs> I hope so. But somebody would say, I just don't feel like worshiping. I just don't feel like praising right now. And I could do it with music without, but, but I don't feel like it right now. And this is where I go, awesome. Do it anyway. Do it anyway. I remember having a, a bass player years ago who was in, in a worship band I was leading and I asked him to play a certain song a certain way on the bass and he was like, Mike, and I'm like, what? And he goes, and I go, what? And he says, I'm not feeling it. That part you want me to play, I'm not feeling it. And I just remember I was probably being rude. I turned to him and I said, you don't have to feel it. You just have to play it. <laughs> and there's an element of this where praise is sometimes something you simply force. Now, forced praise, this may be controversial, forced praise I think is a beautiful and wonderful thing. Forcing yourself to praise, now somebody forcing you to praise, that's not even possible. But forcing yourself to praise, that's a beautiful and wonderful thing. Now this is very different than faked praise. Faked praise is all about appearances. Forced praise is all about will and intent. I choose to praise the Lord. I will rejoice in my God. There's like a seriousness in this type of rejoicing, in this type of praise. So how do I rejoice in the Lord even though I don't feel like it? You just do it. You just do it. How about you just start saying out loud the wonderful things about God? Proclaiming his praise. God is awesome. God is good. He is still with me. He has forgiven me. God, you are beautiful. You are wonderful. Your promises are precious to my life. I'm so glad I'm yours. You've saved me. You've called me. You've forgiven me. You may not feel it in the beginning, but you'll probably feel it in the end. <laughs> and that's one of the beautiful things about forcing ourselves, seriously, with, with intent and will to praise God. I think Job gives us a really, really stark example of this. So Job chapter 1, if you would please turn there. Let's look at Job's example of, I think, forced praise. Uh, because, I mean, this applies to anybody in any circumstance, for sure. Job chapter 1. Most often when you're preaching from Job, you're in either the first chapter or the last couple chapters, it seems. But Job chapter 1, verse 13. We're going to read all the way through verse 22. Speaking of Job, it says, Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, and a messenger came to Job and said, Here's the message. The oxen were plowing and the donkeys were feeding beside them when the Sabians raided them and took them away. Indeed, they've killed the servants with the edge of the sword and I alone have escaped to tell you. 
So somebody stole his livestock, killed his servants, and only one of them made it out to tell Job about it. Then, same day, verse 16, while he was still speaking, another also came and said, The fire of God fell from heaven, speaking of lightning probably, and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. And I alone have escaped to tell you. So there, there's something, a meteor, lightning, volcanic ash, like something came from the sky and burned up and killed, killed uh, more flocks, more servants, and only one made it out to tell him the bad news. And verse 17, same day, while he was still speaking, another also came and said, the Chaldeans formed three bands, raided the camels and took them away, yes, and killed the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. And in case you're thinking his day could not get worse, while he was still speaking, another also came and said, your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And suddenly a great wind came from across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house and it fell on the young people and they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. For a minute, remember that Job is not just letters on a page. This is a real guy. Like he really got this news all at once on one horrible, horrible day, the worst day of his life. Finally, he hears his children have been killed through what, some tornado or something like that? Oh my goodness. But look at Job's response. And there's a lot to this. There's a whole study on Job, which isn't tonight. But look at Job's response. Talk about forced praise. Then Job arose, tore his robe, so he is genuinely sorrowful, and shaved his head in mourning and in grief, and he fell to the ground and worshipped. Would you have done that? Would you be like, oh man, I am going to worship. If someone said to you, today, the worst day of your life, what you really need is to fall to the ground and worship. Take your mourning and your grieving and bring it to God. And fall to the ground. Would you be like, you know what? Get out of here. Would you say, you you Christians and you're, you're horrible. Well, is that what you would think? Or... But here's what he says. He worships and he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I sh shall I return there. I don't think these are empty words. These are important words. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin nor charge God with wrong. I think that Job gives us a key to dealing with tragedy in our lives. When he, before he mourns the loss of his children and, fleet and, and uh, flocks and sheep and whatever else he lost, servants, people, crops, everything. He says something, naked I came into this world. What's he saying? I started with nothing, God. And everything that I just lost was things you gave me. So thank you that I even had it for when I did. Everything I lost was something you gave me. So thank you that I had it even when I did. This so often is the heart of someone who's going through hardship and they're actually making it through well, is when they've, after they've lost a child, They've lost a, a, the use of their a, a body part or something like this, something really harsh, something really tough. And they say, you know what? I thank God for what I did have when I had it. Because what? Naked I came to this world with nothing I came. God gave and God take, took away. So blessed be the name of God. I'm just going to trust him in all these things. That was his attitude. I think it's a key to facing tragedy is to know that we should thank God for the blessings, not just complain for them being gone. You know, it's, my cat is the opposite of this, right? 
my cat, I go up, walk by my cat, and she's like, Meow, you know, pet me, basically. So I go and I start petting my cat. And then I'm like, okay. And I'm like probably reading with one hand and petting with the other. You know, and then I'm like, all right, I, my knees are hurting. I'm, I'm, I'm out of here, you know. So I start, well, I go about my way and she looks at me like, what? Meow. Like, what? Why are you stop petting me? And it's like, there's no appreciation for all the pets I was just giving you. <laughs> like, there's no like, thank you for what you did. It's just, why didn't you do more? And um, anyway, I think that that's a key thing. So part of this rejoice in the Lord is thanking God for the things he has done, even in the midst of losing those things. Pretty heavy stuff. Turn to Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16. And we'll look at another example of this where Paul the Apostle is in prison and he thanks the Lord. What? Yeah. (laughs) He thanks the Lord. The deeply, truly spiritual person seems to respond to tragedy with praise. With praise. Acts chapter 16 verses 22 through 25 it says then the multitude rose up together against them and listen to all the stuff that happens to these guys and the magistrates tore off their clothes so paul and his companions they get their clothes ripped off of them commanded them to be beaten with rods so they were severely beaten and when they laid many stripes on them that would be whippings that would tear the flesh they threw them into prison commanding the jailer to keep them securely so put them in in the darkest hole jailer Having received such a charge, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks so they can't even move. But at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And then you can read the rest of the story. It's really interesting stuff, but I just want to notice their reaction. They're praying and they're singing hymns. They're beaten, bloodied, bruised, shackled, and in prison their clothes ripped and they start singing hymns and I'm like driving down the street and a couple people cut me off and it like ruins my day. It's not the events of my life. It's the mindset I have that dictates these things. They have a rejoice in the Lord mindset. Could you imagine how this started? Like maybe, maybe Paul just starts like, he's like, Oh, let's pray. Let's pray. Oh, and he wants to pray. Like I'm upset. I'm, I'm hurt. I'm bothered. And he starts praying. Oh, Lord, they don't know what they're doing. Just forgive them, God, please. Let us be a witness. You know, you brought us here for a reason. We're just going to trust you in it. We do pray for healing. We pray that you fix our bodies and what's wrong here. It hurts. But we thank you that we got to suffer with Christ and for Christ. Oh, and Christ suffered for us. And then they start singing. And it's like it just shifts towards praise. This is important. So rejoice in the Lord, right? Praise from the upright is beautiful. Let's... Look again, if you would turn to Psalm chapter 42. I want to look at a couple more examples of rejoicing in God, praising him, uh, forced praise, so to speak. Or maybe I should say praise when there's tension in your, in your life and in your heart and mind. Psalm 42, verse 1. You may know this. As the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul, uh, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? And listen to the sorrow here. My tears have been my food day and night, while they continually say to me, where is your God? When I remember these things, I pour out my soul within me, for I used to go with the multitude. I went with them to the house of God with the voice of joy and praise, with a multitude that kept a pilgrim feast. Why are you cast down, O my soul? 
And why are you disquieted within me? I think the answer seems obvious. But yet, look at his response. Hope in God. Now, who's he talking to? His soul. His own soul he's talking to. He's talking to himself, so that's okay, just in case you're wondering. (laughs) Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him for the help of his countenance. I'm going to praise God because God helps me, even though right now, I don't feel like it's happening. But he's the God who helps me, so I'm praising him anyways. Oh my God, my soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I will remember you from the land of the Jordan and from the heights of Hermon, from the hill Mizar. Deep calls unto deep at the noise of your waterfalls and all your waves and billows have gone over me. This phrase, it's actually used in a song, probably inappropriately, that verse is talking about trials. The deep unto deep and the waves are like the crashing of one trial after another. It just, they keep coming down on me, Lord, and I know you're sovereign in these things. Then it says, the Lord will command his loving kindness in the daytime, and in the night his song shall be with me. A prayer to the God of my life. I will say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with the breaking of my bones, as with a breaking of my bones, my enemies reproach me while they say to me all day long, where is your God? So he's real about the hardship he's facing, but now think of how he concludes. And the conclusion of the Psalms is so important. So often we read pieces of them instead of the whole Psalm. The whole Psalm is important. Look at where he concludes. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God. And then forced praise, an act of will. For I shall yet praise him, the help of my countenance and my God. I know I'm going through hardship, but I also know God is my help. And so I'm going to praise him right now. So there's this, this, this experience in the Psalms where he's going back and forth, seeing the, the hardship he's facing, thinking of the enemies, but thinking of God's goodness and his kindness and his love and thinking of the pain he's experiencing. And he knows God could stop it, but yet he's going to trust God anyways and praise him no matter what, because he knows God will help. Rejoicing in the Lord. Look at Psalm 43. Psalm 43, it says, Vindicate me, O God, and plead my cause against an ungodly nation. O deliver me from the deceit, the deceitful and unjust man, for you are the God of my strength. Why do you cast me off? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? O send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your tabernacle. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy. On the harp I will praise you, O God, my God. So he's real about the tension. I'm in a difficult time. It's not resolved. It's not better. It's not fixed. And my hope is in God. And I want, oh, Lord, it would be so awesome if you just fix this. Get it over with. And I'll go and praise you and I will lift up your name. But yet for now, and here's how he concludes. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you disquieted within me? Meaning that no matter what the the answer is, no matter what's disquieting me, yet here's my solution, hope in God, for I shall yet praise him, the help of my countenance and my God. I want to rejoice in the Lord. I want to encourage myself in the Lord. That means an intentional, deliberate, purposeful praise, even when I'm going through hardship, especially when I'm going through hardship. That's the time to do it. So our question for us is, does your worship of God When you're praising God, just before we had the message tonight, we had a time of worship. Does your worship of God depend on how you feel? Or does it depend on who he is? I remember years and years and years ago, at least a year ago. No, it was was longer than that. This is years back 
we were in the sanctuary and there was a time of worship going on and I was, I was uh, hearing the, the worship songs and I wanted to praise the Lord, but I just totally was not feeling it. I'm like, I just don't feel like praising God. And I remember getting irritated with myself. M much product in my life has come from me being irritated with myself. So I'm like, I don't care. I'm just going to do this. So at that point, I remember just saying, you know what? I don't care to myself. I don't care if you don't feel like worshiping. God's worthy. I'm going to worship. And so I just put my hands up and I started singing and praising God. Ironically, I did actually feel a lot better, but that was like a turning point. There was like a shifting in my time of worship with God where it, it suddenly didn't matter to me that much how I felt. And it doesn't really occur to me that often nowadays when I go to worship the Lord. It doesn't occur to me how I feel. And I, I, I think that that's a good thing. You know, since I'm usually thinking about how I feel most of the time. <laughs> I, I think that that's a beautiful thing, actually. I think that's really wonderful. Self-focus is actually pretty contradictory in worship because worship is about who you're focusing on, right? And so I want to worship God and give it all to him. Um, in 1 Samuel chapter 30, verse 6, we read about David encouraging himself in the Lord. This is the, the last one of these passages we'll go to, but if you would, please turn there. 1 Samuel 30. It's right after Revelation. Just kidding with you. It's not, it's not, it's old. Okay, 1 Samuel chapter 30. In this passage, David, it says, encouraged himself in the Lord. That's actually a biblical phrase. I didn't make it up, right? He encourages himself in the Lord, which is a beautiful idea. But what people don't realize when they quote this often is the context. David goes out with his army to go fight a battle. They end up returning back home to find out that somebody came and took all their wives and goods and kids and livestock and took them away, kidnapped them all, and are going to mistreat them, possibly kill them. And David's people are not happy with guess who? David. Because when you're the leader, you get blamed or you get credit whether you deserve it or not. Right? <laughs> so in 1 Samuel chapter 30, verse 6, Here's the response. Now David was greatly distressed for the people spoke of stoning him. They're like, let's kill David. Like my wife's gone, my kid's gone, let's kill David. This is, this is scary. These are people David loves. These are people he trusts. These are like his, his men. These are his mighty, we read about David's mighty warriors. These are them. And they're like, let's kill him. Then it says, because the soul of all the people was grieved, every man for his sons and his daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. This is what he did. He turned to God and he strengthened himself in the Lord his God in the middle of this. Like, let's see, I've had a bad day, you know, like things at work are a little tough right now. And, you know, I have my headache and these things. And I'm not trying to diminish those things, but David was about to be killed by his friends for things he couldn't control. Meanwhile, his own family was also kidnapped. And he strengthened himself in the Lord. And there's a practice where we as Christians, on our own, purposely go to God and seek him. In fact, if it wasn't for the existence of hardship in our lives, I feel like we would never learn to seek the Lord. Because that's when we get on our knees for real, right? So, um, we should probably do verse 2. Psalm 33. We'll move a lot faster now. Psalm 33, verse 2. It says, Praise the Lord with the harp. Make melody to him on an instrument of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully with a shout of joy. Now, there are some people who don't see a place for music in the church, in the body of Christ. And they're even, or they see only non-instrumental music. It's difficult for me to see how they read the book of Psalms. 
I mean, here, like, we're literally commanded to use music in praising God. It's, we're just told to do so. When Paul and Silas were in prison, they started singing. They sang hymns. They had songs of Christ and God that they sang. Um, Jesus sang a hymn before he went out to um, be crucified with his disciples. Really interesting passage. I wish I could sit there and just listen to him and the disciples sing. That would be so neat. Psalm 150 talks about this. Let me just read it to you. It says, Praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty firmament. Praise him for his mighty acts. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. Praise him with the sound of a trumpet. Praise him with with the lute and the harp. The lute's like a guitar type instrument. And the harp. Praise him with the timbrel. That would be a drum type type, uh, percussive instrument. And the dance. Praise him with stringed instruments and flutes. Praise him with loud cymbals. Praise him with clashing cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Now, if you read this psalm carefully, Psalm 150, you find out that actually when you're playing an instrument to God, in a sense, that has breath because it's making noise. So you're like letting everything that has breath praise the Lord. You're like, I'm letting my guitar praise the Lord because I'm using it for his glory. I'm letting my drums praise the Lord. I'm letting me, who has breath, praise the Lord. But that's how the Psalms end. That's the last Psalm. It talks about all these things. Of course, we should mention that in Psalm 33, verse 3, it says, sing to him a new song, play skillfully with a shout of joy. So musicians should practice their art. They should try to learn to do it well. However, when you're alone on your bed, I think just go for it, you know? But um, but when you're you know playing for the congregation, it's good to to try to hone those abilities, to try to play well and sing well to the best of your ability, skillfully. Yeah, I think God sees a place for music and for worship in the modern day church. Some people act like worship is just a modern invention and like a time of worship before Bible study is just like weird, like that's just some weird church thing you guys do that's not in the Bible. And I'm like, there's an entire book on worship. <laughs> like the book of Psalms. And we, we see music used all the time. I think it's a glorious thing. And I think it feeds our souls. As it says, he gives us songs in the night. As it says here, sing to him a new song, meaning about what God's doing now. It doesn't mean you need, you can't have old songs. I like old songs. They were new too at one point, right? But, uh, but we should be seeking the Lord in those things. Um, next in Psalm 33 comes reasons to worship God. In verse four, it says, for the word of the Lord is right and all his work is done in truth. I like it. I like it, man. There's no, there's no waffling back and forth. It's the word of the Lord is right. End of story. God's word is right. What do you think? I mean, are you, do you believe everything in the Bible? Yes. Because it's right. It's not like God inspired it and yet it's got a bunch of wrong mixed in there with the right. The word of the Lord is right. When I came to the Lord, when I first came to Christ, I had a really strong view of biblical inerrancy. Nobody taught it to me. I just inherently just had it. I'm like, it's the word of God. When the issue of the Trinity came up, I remember going to my pastor years and years ago when I was a teenager and I was like, pastor, can you give me verses in the Bible about the Trinity? And he said, well, the Trinity is, and I go, wait, I don't want you to teach me about it. I just want you to tell me where to look because I wasn't sure where to look. I didn't know my Bible well, but I remember, I remember feeling that way. I love my pastor, but I was like, oh yeah, but I don't want you spin Meister. I want you to show it. Just tell me where to look and I'll find it out for myself. And so I studied, I just read the passages and I was like, oh, okay, I get it. I get the biblical teaching on it. Now, there's a sense in which we just have to know God's word is right. His word is true. And that's one of the ways in which we uh, overcome in our hardships and our hard times, you know, is by just going, Lord, I trust you. Your word is right. Your word is true. Every bit of it. And that simple fact leads me to praise because doubt kills worship like nothing.
I mean, it just destroys it, times of doubt. Um, so while, while we'll probably be attacked with doubt, don't harbor it. Don't let it sit there. Take every thought captive to the obedience of Jesus Christ. Then it goes on in verse 5. It says he loves righteousness and justice. God loves righteousness and justice. He loves it. Righteousness is a good thing. It's not a bad thing. Justice is a wonderful thing. It's just scary for us sinners. <laughs> but that's why mercy and justice have met at the cross, so we can be forgiven and there can be justice. The earth is full of the goodness of the Lord. Have you ever thought of this? That the earth is full of his goodness? I, I like the scripture that says, taste and see that the Lord is good. And I like to think about it quite literally. I'm like eating food and I'm like, man, God's good. Like he is. Like we, we grow our own tomatoes so we can make some yummy BLTs. Oh, I'm, I'm like, God's good. This food is so good. God is good. Like Mexican food, the Lord is good. It's good, man. Whatever it is, I mean, God made food pleasurable for a purpose and it communicates his goodness to us in a whole new way. I think it's a wonderful thing. So taste and see that the Lord is good. What beauty do you see? What's the most beautiful thing to you? Is it, is it a little baby? Is it a sunset? Is it a, a, a hawk flying through the sky? Like, what is it that's beautiful to you? Is it a little koala bear rolling around on the grass? Is that what's beautiful to you? But God is good. You're seeing the beauty and the goodness of God in those things. And it goes on in verse 6. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. Think about it. God just literally created it out of nothing. Are you not impressed? Are you not amazed? I don't create anything out of nothing. God created everything out of nothing. Verse 7, he gathers the waters of the sea together as a heap. He lays up the deep in storehouses. I mean, at what point do you say that not only is creation amazing, so is the creator? I mean, like how many wonderful things does God have to make for us to stop and say, wow, these are really just teaching us about you, aren't they? This is really demonstrating your glory and your goodness. At what point do you, do you see the work of the artist and finally say, wow, that's a good artist. <laughs> Give him credit for what he's done. God deserves celebrity status. He absolutely does. More than, more than anybody, certainly more than the celebrities we have nowadays, which I don't even understand how that's working. <laughs> it doesn't make any sense, but God deserves that. Verse nine says, for he spoke and it was done. Oh, excuse me, verse 8. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. So not only should God have the celebrity status of us being in, in wonder of him, but we're also to have a fear of him. And this is actually not just respect. I know people tend to say the fear of the Lord is just that you respect him. But there's more to it than that. Je I mean, let me use Jesus' words. He says, don't fear someone who can kill your body and afterward can't do anything. He's like, that's nothing. Then he says, I'll tell you who to fear. Fear him who after you're dead could cast you, your soul into hell. So like, could you imagine like a modern day pastor coming up after Jesus and be like, hey guys, just so you know, Jesus just means respect. Like not actually like scary fear. Just respect, brah. Don't worry about it. No, he means fear, like terror. Like the kind of fear that you say, God, you're in charge and you're my judge. And so I fear you. Now, there's another fear we don't have of God. And that's the kind of fear that you have of someone who's unreliable or perhaps they blow up in anger and, and, and you don't know what they're going to do next. They're capricious. See, God's completely just. And so I know he would never do something to me that was wrong. So I don't fear that. It's not like, well, what if one day God's just like, oh, I hate your nose. You're gone, you know. 
rather I know his goodness and I know his desire to forgive us and free us and deliver us through Christ. So I know his love as well. And so love casts out all fear. I no longer fear torment or, or judgment because it's been poured out on Christ. But until I come to Jesus, that fear is one of the things that drives me to the cross. And it's a good and healthy thing. Because it's real. Because it's real. Just like the same way in which I fear jumping off the Grand Canyon. That's a good fear. You know, this is, this is a healthy fear. So let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He makes the plans of the peoples to no effect. But, may I stick in there to show you it's a contrasting point. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Think of the Tower of Babel, like the nations gathered together, they got their agenda, they got their plan. They're like, no, this is a brave new world. You, you Christians don't understand, man. This isn't like how it's done anymore. Like we've outgrown you. And God's just like, you know, spread out, split up, change of plans. Because it's ultimately God's agenda that's going to happen. That Tower of Babel thing is repeating in the lives of every single person who's trying to live outside the will of God. They're trying to build their life up and do their thing outside God's will, but ultimately it's going to come to, he brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. I don't need to worry about what's going on in the world in that sense. God's sovereign and he's in control and I can trust him with it. He created everything and he's also in control of everything. God's counsel is going to stand. It's unstoppable. So the only thing I have to do is be afraid of being on the wrong side of that. That's the number one thing. That's the only thing I have to really be scared of, I think. Verse 12, it says, Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people he has chosen as his own inheritance. And nationally, this is so appropriate for us. We're not Israel, okay? We're the United States of America. But the people in our country are definitely not honoring to God right now. And many who, even on, on both sides of the aisle, claim Christianity are not. They're not representing Christianity, that's for sure. There isn't a real love for the poor, a love for the destitute, a love for the hurting, a love for the helpless, a love for the down, nor is there a preservation of, of the life of the infant. I mean, there's, there's just, there's, anyway, I don't want to get into all that. <laughs> but, but blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Where we say, you know what, you know what's more important than my politics or more important than my agenda is that I give God honor in the things that I'm doing. That's the most important thing. And if you're like, well, Mike, that's just not the way it's supposed to be. And I'm like, well, I don't know. I'm going to take my Bible over your political opinions any day. Any day. But personally, this is also the same. Blessed is the person whose God is the Lord. If you're his, you're blessed. And then we're ultimately part of a new nation in Christ. We're part of the, the, the kingdom of God in Christ. Verse 13, the Lord looks from heaven. He sees all the sons of men. From the place of his dwelling, he looks on all the inhabitants of the earth. He fashions their hearts individually. He considers all their works. The word look in verse 13 and 14 are actually two different Hebrew words. The first one means to glance or to behold, to look across. And the next one means to closely examine or to examine critically. So I could say the Lord looks, glances, beholds from heaven. He sees all the sons of men. He sees everybody. But from the place of his dwelling, he carefully examines all the inhabitants of the earth. So not only is he aware of us, he sees us, but he's examining each of us individually and carefully and thoughtfully. We're under the watchful eye of the Lord. 
And then it says he fashions their hearts individually. That's an interesting phrase, huh? I mean, you might be like, Mike, that sounds like Calvinism. And I'll say, well, it does sound like Calvinism. And that's totally supportive of Calvinism. I mean, it, he fashions their hearts individually. That's what it is. It says that. But my, my issue with Calvinism is that, personally, because I have fellowship with Calvinists and non-Calvinists the same, but my issue would be this, is that while I trust that God fashions our hearts, I also don't want to deny all the passages that seem to indicate we also have a free will choice to make. So I just believe both. And if someone says, well, that's irrational, then I, I, I just disagree. I don't think it's irrational. I think that that's the, the teaching of the, of the passages. And I think it, it's, it's actually really cool, <laughs> in my personal opinion. So we, 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 we have intact God's sovereignty, and we have intact man's free will. Um, so I believe God can do that. So, but he fashions their hearts individually. And there are scriptures that say, um, um, you know, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him and things like that. So we want to be prayerful to, about people who don't know the Lord, that God would draw them, that we would be calling out on God to do a work within their own hearts, fashion their heart this way, Lord. Hopefully that they would be uh, saved. Verse 16, no king is saved by the multitude of an army. A mighty man is not delivered by great strength. A horse is a vain hope for safety. Neither shall it deliver any by its great strength. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his mercy to deliver their soul from death and to keep them alive in famine. This is the, um, the contrast. God's going to take care of you. Don't rely on your strength. Don't rely on your power. Don't rely on your cleverness. Don't rely on your money. Don't rely on your whatever, you name it. Don't rely on these things. You, the king is not saved by the multitude of an army. Ultimately, God is sovereign in the works and the things of man. This keeps us from two really important errors. One of them is thinking that we're okay because we're prosperous. That's a danger that is so common to mankind. I mean, when, I'm, when, when things are hurting, I'm praying a lot. But when things are going great, how much am I seeking the Lord? So don't fall into this. This is over, where Proverbs, the writer of Proverbs 30 says, God, please don't let me have too much lest I deny you. Lest I just deny you. And this is a danger in prosperity. Prosperity shouldn't be our goal, obviously, seeking and staying close to God should be our ultimate goal. Jeremiah twenty two twenty one says this, I spoke to you in your prosperity, but you said I will not hear. This has been your manner from your youth that you did not obey my voice. And Jeremiah is telling them how God will now be speaking to them in their pain. So don't think that prosperity means you're okay. If you meet a rich person, it doesn't mean they're godly. If you meet a wealthy, popular individual, it doesn't mean that they're righteous. If you meet somebody that has a lot of friends, it doesn't mean anything. Godly character is what counts, not those types of things. Psalm 32 says this, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will guide you with my eye. Do not be like the horse or the mule, which have no understanding, which must be harnessed by bit and bridle else they will not come near you. So God says, I don't want to put like the bit in your mouth and like yank and jerk on you. Instead, what I would like to do is just guide you with my eye where I'm just like, and you go, <laughs> you know, hey, that way. And then you go and you do it. And you just, you see the direction I'm leading you and you just go for it willingly. I don't want to be tugging on you. So we don't want to have that prosperity in the way. Don't be tricked by the prosperity of others or our own for that matter. And then number two, Another error we don't want to fall into is thinking that we're not okay because we're in pain. Oh man, I just found out I have cancer. Am I in, did I sin? Did I bring this on myself somehow? Well, 
do you think you didn't have cancer because you were so sinless before? <laughs> um, that would be a, a silly thing to think. The Bible's totally against thinking we're not okay because we're in pain, but it's true that God will sometimes use circumstances to judge us and wake us up. That's absolutely true. But it's also true that the book of Job was written to combat the idea that suffering meant unrighteousness. But people have always struggled with this. And they've always had a hard time with this. And had a hard time with, with giving too much credit to the rich and too much discredit to the poor. The point here is that God delivers. And this, I think, our goal is just to believe it and trust it. And then you can rejoice in the Lord. You can encourage yourself in God when you're like, God, I don't have the means. I don't have the ways. I don't know how this is going to work out. But it's not that if I can get my calculator out and figure it all out, then, then I'll be okay. Ultimately, Lord, you're the one that's going to take care of these things. I'll just trust you in it. Remember he brought Joseph from slavery in prison to the right hand of Pharaoh? Remember he took this little boy David and, and had him be the slayer of Goliath? Nobody saw that coming. He fed Elijah with ravens when Elijah had nothing and didn't know where it was going to come from. He handed the Midianites over to Gideon's men who were outnumbered 300 to 1. They were completely outnumbered. I think those are God's odds. You know, when he's like, how are you doing? Are, are, you, are you outnumbered by your bills 300 to 1? <laughs> I think God can deliver. The point is we set our hearts upon him and seek him and do things his way. He gave Daniel victory over a wave of political correctness and fabricated laws meant to persecute him. And he gave him victory out of the lion's den. He gave the early church a voice that no persecution could silence. And in fact, the more hotly they were persecuted, the more the gospel spread. Why? Because no king is saved by the multitude of an army. A mighty man is not delivered by great strength. A horse is a vain hope for safety. Neither shall deliver any by its great strength. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his mercy to deliver their soul from death and to keep them alive in famine. And so the response at the end of this psalm, it says, Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. Our soul waits for the Lord. That word wait in the Bible is sometimes misunderstood. It's not here talking about a silent time of prayer where I don't talk and I'm waiting to hear from the Spirit. That's not what it's referring to. Um, I'm not saying you can't do that. I'm saying that that's not what this is talking about. This wait, it's actually an active waiting. So I'm going to do the things of God and wait for him to work out the situation. That's the waiting. I'm going to keep plugging away and just doing whatever God's called me to do actively and he'll fix it. I won't. Because I'm not going to dip into, my, into sin to try to be, have a solution for what I'm going through. He is our help. He is our shield, it says in verse 20. Our help and our shield. He gets me through different things. That's the help. You, you help me in different stuff. But I like the shield too. Because not only does God help me through stuff, he also shields me so some stuff never even comes my way. I mean, just think of all the times you didn't die. I mean, how many bad things never happened to you because God simply never let it come your way? You never even thanked the Lord for it because you didn't know. But he's our help. He's also our shield. He simply protects us. Think of Job. In the book of Job, Satan would have loved to attack Job much earlier, but he says there's a hedge of protection around Job and Satan wasn't able to touch him. That's the standard. I mean, if Satan was able to have his way, we'd all be in a lot worse shape, that's for sure. You don't even know all the things God is doing for you right now. Verse 21, for our heart shall rejoice in him, a, a commitment of faith. Our heart will rejoice in him because we've trusted in his holy name. Let your mercy, O Lord, be upon us just as we hope in you. So rejoicing comes from two things, God's goodness and my trust in God's goodness. And these are the things that we should do when we're, we need to encourage ourselves in the Lord, which I think is a pretty regular thing. Please encourage yourself in God, in his mercies that are new every morning. 
in his love, his deep love for you. Have you thought of this? That Paul writes in Ephesians that they might know the love of God that passes understanding. But wait, they were already saved, so they already knew God's love. But what is this love that, they're, that they don't know? They already know God loves them and he sent his son to die. It's an experiential thing about like in your heart, experiencing this love of God. Maybe that's what you need a little bit more of, is just to be like, God, please show me how much you love me. Let my heart just perceive your incredible love just so that I could enjoy it, so that I could then look to you and just hope in your mercy and hope in you. In fact, that's what it ends on. After all that, it says, Lord, let your mercy, O Lord, be upon us just as we hope in you. Or in other words, as we have faith in you, may we be forgiven. It's the gospel. It ends with the gospel. Because that's where we can always drop our anchor and say, Lord, no matter what's going on in my life, I know I have the grace of Jesus Christ. I know I have forgiveness for my many, many sins because of you. And all of a sudden, our hearts that are anxious and our hearts that are tumultuous, because I can't think of a different word there, <laughs> those hearts become calm and those hearts become more peaceful because you realize that your eternity is secure in Jesus and your present is guarded by the shield of God and helped by the help of God and under the umbrella of the sovereign control of a good, awesome Father in heaven. So I hope that we would uh, encourage ourselves in the Lord. I think this was... Uh, something important for us to talk about tonight. I, I hope it blesses you guys. This, is, this isn't about what we know um, intellectually. This is all about our soul. You know, why are you cast down on my soul? I will yet praise him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your holy word. We thank you because your word is right. And this passage is right. And it's right for us. Help us learn how to strengthen ourselves in the Lord no matter what is going on. How to come back to hoping in you and having mercy according to that very hope. To trusting the sovereignty of God. To um, being grateful for the help of God. To acknowledging that the shield of God is there. Making sure things aren't even worse. Lord, we just thank you. Happy are the people whose God is the Lord. May we be those people. In Jesus' name. Amen. While I was dead, you sought me out and gave your life to me. There is